Hey, and welcome to another episode of New to the Table, a podcast produced by She Sources. I'm Emma Woodfield Stern. My pronouns are she, her, and I'll be your host for this episode with special guest, Georgia Stitt. I am so, so excited to have Georgia on the show. When I emailed her team and they responded and they were like, yep, Georgia's down, I fangirled. I was shocked in the best way because she's a really major player, first off, in the musical theater industry. Second off, in changing the musical theater industry for women and gender non-conforming people, Georgia is a composer, lyricist, music director. She's also an activist, an educator, and she's the founder and president of Maestra, which is an organization for the women and gender non-conforming people who make music in the musical theater industry. They're a community. They have monthly seminars. They have mentorship programs. They have workshops, networking events, and all of these online resources. So if you are somebody who makes music in the musical theater industry, first off, this episode is definitely for you. And second off, you have to look up Maestra and get involved however you can. Georgia has worked as a music director in LA, on film, TV, in New York City, on theater projects. Honestly, her bio is too impressive to go through on a quick podcast intro, so I definitely encourage you to go. If you've never heard of Georgia before, first off, gasp. How have you not heard of Georgia Stitt? Second off, (laughs) I would really encourage you to go to her website and read all about her bio and all of the amazing projects she's been involved in and all of her incredible original work and listen to her albums of her original songs. So if you're new here, which you might be, maybe you saw Georgia's name and you wanted to listen because I would do the same thing. New to the Table is all about giving early career women and gender non-conforming people stories, stories of people who can be their role models. I always am looking for more role models of people who are in leadership positions in the entertainment industry. So in my pursuit of them, I wanted to share them with you, the listener, because I know how helpful it is to hear somebody break down their journey, break down their story, and it just makes yours feel a little bit less daunting. And it makes this crazy, crazy industry that we call the entertainment industry, film, TV, theater, all of it, it just makes it feel a little bit more community-oriented. If you listened to our first episode with Macy Schmidt, you would have heard me say that basically there were a few people that I had conversations with over Zoom for like a podcast project in 2022, and Georgia was one of them. And then life happened, other complicated things happened, and here we are in late 2023, and I'm finally able to release these conversations. But I can again say, and I'm not just saying this because I want you to listen to this episode, I'm really saying it that... When I went back and listened to my conversation with Georgia, it felt just as relevant. It felt just as insightful and helpful and inspiring. Pretty much the only thing in our conversation that has changed since we talked in 2022, and it's now October 2023 when this episode is coming out, is you'll hear Georgia reference something called gettowork.org. And when you type in that URL, it'll bring you to risetheater.org, which is the Rise Theater directory, which is an amazing amazing resource. It's the group effort of so many different organizations out there to make sure that the theater industry is becoming a more safe and inclusive place for everybody. And if you are a theater maker, I highly encourage you to go and check that out. So without further ado, if you're new here, which you probably are because it's only our third episode, or if you're listening to the third episode, thanks for being a listener. You know the drill. Pretend like you're sitting at the table next to us. If Georgia and I met in a coffee shop, these would be the questions I would ask her as an aspiring professional in the theater industry. I hope you enjoy. I'll even play some coffee shop sounds to get you acclimated and ready for a conversation. Georgia Stitt, everybody. 
how do you identify yourself as a creative? I like to say that I'm a composer, lyricist, music director in that order. And then sometimes if the list goes on, I say pianist or music producer, educator, activist, any of those things, yeah. but, <laughs> but poster lyricist first and then music director. And why do you specifically like what you do? I have always known that I was a musician and that I wanted to be a musician professionally, but I also love words. I'm a really avid reader. I, I love poetry. I love novels. I love nonfiction. And so I love the combination of words and music to tell stories. And I like it when I'm the person who gets to create it as a composer or lyricist. And I like it when I'm the person who gets to interpret it as the music director. So all of those things working together in collaboration, using the words and the music to tell the stories is my dream work. Yeah, that's kind of cool that you get to be both because you get to take like both seats on different projects. I definitely think um, I'm a better composer because I have been a music director for so long. When you're the music director, you're looking at a score that someone else wrote and trying to figure out how how best to deliver what the composer intended. And so then when I'm the composer, I often think, what is the music director going to have to do to deliver what I intend. Have I notated it properly? Have I made it clear in my expression what I want? And have I left room for those future collaborators to bring themselves to the project too? So understanding both sides of the process has been really helpful. Yeah, that's that's so smart. Also, I just want to say, I, I read your essay, Why Do I Write in the Dramatist? And I loved your answer. When you see other works of art, it makes you want to come home and contribute to that. And you worded it so well. I was like, yes, that is what it is. <laughs> when you sit in the theater and you come home and you're like, oh, it's my turn too. Like, I want to, I want to join in. I think a lot of, a lot of people have asked like why artists had such a hard time being productive during the pandemic. And was it because we were all overwhelmed and scared and sick and, you know, all those things. And I, in some ways, I think it's because we weren't, we weren't being fed, you know, like, yeah, I, I couldn't go to theater. I couldn't hear live music for so long. And that is the thing that makes me makes me percolate it makes me want to write and and in some ways I'm like what's the point like nothing's getting produced anyway right uh, and now that it's starting to come back I feel the awakening a bit again yeah that's I actually never even thought about that about how like during COVID uh, we had a lot of like TV to watch but everyone kept saying I just want to sit in a theater again and be in that community like it's not the same when you're at home by yourself watching Bridgerton as awesome <laughs> as that is <laughs> but that I'd never thought about that before yeah yeah uh, sometimes when we're just starting out like especially depending on whether people go to college or not anymore we look at people like you and we're like how did you get there <laughs> and so I just wanted to literally ask you how did you get here and what were some pivotal moments in your journey that you feel brought you here what were some things that you said yes to that you didn't realize would lead to other things or that you said no to that open up the door from the get-go that's a really great question very smart Let's see. I knew that I wanted to be in New York City. I grew up in Tennessee outside of Memphis and I went to college in Nashville and I knew that I wanted to get to New York City. And so I, I remember making a lot of really specific choices along the way to to not to not detour, you know, to not like, I don't know, not take a job or, or fall in love or anything that was going to just keep me from doing that. <laughs> so I was <laughs> deliberate about that from the time I went to college. I applied to the NYU graduate musical theater writing program, both because I knew it would serve me as a writer, 
but also for the practical reason that it would allow me to move to New York City in a kind of safe environment. I knew I had two years where I was under the umbrella of being a student and, and you know, I would have help with housing and not be expected to earn a full salary right mm-hmm. away. So it was in some ways, grad school was a bit of a safety net for me. And then while I was there, I was able to start music directing on the side and music direct kind of within the program too. music direct for my colleagues and for my professors. And ultimately, when I graduated, I had a safety net of projects I had music directed, relationships I'd made, theaters I'd worked for. And that was an easier way for me to get into the professional scene, you know, instead of having to move there cold and just be like, Hi, I've arrived. Someone hire me. Um, So that was a big one. Then I got onto um, a music directing path. The benefit that I had was that I'm a good pianist and I was a good sight reader from even then. And so it was very easy for me to play auditions or to just jump into a project and kind of navigate my way through it while I was sight reading. And that's something that I recommend for anyone who's who's trying to do this is really shore up that that skill mm. to be able to just, you know, make quick decisions and get the information into your brain and into your fingers very quickly. So I was able to work quite a bit right off the bat, but I was on the music director train and I started to feel, even though I was getting my master's degree in composing, you know, in writing musical theater, I couldn't figure out how to have the world take me seriously as a composer because I had now established myself as a music director and the industry likes to put us in boxes, likes to say, oh, you do this. And so therefore I will only hire you to do that. I was actually working on a show and I had been writing, I had been writing songs on the side all through grad school and just, it felt like a hobby, a thing I was doing over here. And uh, I went into the recording studio and recorded a song and then another song and then another song. And suddenly I was like, if I do enough of this recording, I will eventually have an album. And I ultimately paid for and released my own album, my first album, after I'd been in the city for at least a decade. And that album was the thing that launched me as a composer, made the industry say, oh, she writes and these songs are interesting. And the the people that she has singing the songs are interesting. And those are people that I had met because I was a music director. but I think that is the biggest twist and turn was self-producing my first album was just a, a financial leap into, I don't know if this is going to make money or not. I don't know if this if I'm going to take a loss on this, but I need to put something into the world that says I'm a composer. And it did open up the doors. I think, you know, after that, my applications were taken more seriously. It was easier to get an agent, like all those things. So that was a big leap, I would say. It's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, let's see. So releasing the first album was a big one. You know, some things, some things happened by, you know, where personal life and professional life get intertwined. My husband is Jason Robert Brown and Jason and I moved to Los Angeles. I'd have to even look up what year it was. I'm not good at remembering what year anything happened, but you know, we moved to Los Angeles and we were both looking for just something different from New York. We were looking for some place to be that was in some ways running from an industry that had been really hard, particularly for him and looking to do something different. And and I had just worked on the music directing team for a film that was doing post-production in LA. And so we were both like, well, let's just go see what that is. Those years in LA feel to me like we were we were trying to escape from New York and we eventually came back to New York. But at the time I thought maybe this has been a mistake. Maybe we never should have left New York. But in truth, I worked in film and TV quite a bit in the time we were in LA because that was what the industry was. And when we moved, 
back to New York, it really served me as a music director and ultimately as a composer to have had that film and TV experience. And so my New York career opened up because I had had this, this bit of a detour. It took me a while in hindsight to view it that way, to view it not as that we had gone into hiding <laughs> and then come out, but right. rather but rather that both of us developed a crazy amount of different skills that we wouldn't have gotten if we'd never left New York. So that was right. an interesting tour. Yeah. I also, I feel like the New York LA thing is such a, a lot of people feel like they have to choose either or. And I, I do like how it's sort of feeling more like you could do both potentially. The film scene in New York in general is growing as well, which, which makes it that way. But I love the detours like that, that sometimes you feel like you lost time and you come back and you realize that all of that needed to happen. Like your, your person building this, that's not really a word, but I mean, it should be. (laughs) Yeah, it should. I think especially for women. And I, I guess to be inclusive for parents, you know, the, the idea that those years coincided with the birth of both, I have two children and they were both born in that LA chapter. So when I talk about the disappearing, there was a little bit of disappearing because I was disappearing into being a new mom and to trying to figure right. out all of the all of how that worked but I didn't stop working I was just working differently and also because I wasn't doing as much musical theater I wasn't on the same train I had a little bit more time to write so when I came back to New York I had two children I had some musicals that I'd written I had more right. recordings that I'd done you know it, it, it turned out to be fertile in a different way yeah totally Something else I want to ask about is Maestra and the birth of that. And when did you decide that this had to happen? Well, there's a a really great origin story. So I was music directing Sweet Charity off-Broadway in 2016. Mm -hmm. Lee Silverman was the director and Mary Mitchell Campbell was the orchestrator and I was the music director. Lee asked us to hire an all-female band because the story of Sweet Charity is that this character of Charity is a different person when she's in the dressing room with her girls than she is when she's out in public. And that's part of what the story that Lee was telling. And she said, when she's in the dressing room, she's herself and she is free. And that's where a lot of her songs happen. And then when she goes out into the world, she's guarded and her relationships with the men that she's trying to, to fall in love with are, are guarded in a certain way. So I want when she's in her room and she's safe, I want her to be surrounded by women. And so, and you're going to be on stage, so they should be all women. And, and it was just the first time that anyone had ever given me a dramaturgical reason why certain people should be hired, costumed and, you know, all that. So it turns out Mary Mitchell and I had a really hard time finding a diverse group of women to play these, it was really six chairs and I was one of them. The process of trying to find them was so illuminating that first of all, it brought up our own biases. Mary Mitchell and I were both like, if if Lee hadn't asked us for this, we would have just hired our boys mm. that we have always played with. So we were like, what is that? That we, you know, that those are the people we go to. And then when we asked those men, like who their female colleagues were and who their subs were, they had a very limited list. So we went to the music contractors and we were like, who are the women? That should, we should be hiring, and they had a very limited list. A lot of the women that they recommended were already working somewhere else; they weren't available. And so, it just was a really hard process to find the, the players we needed. And then, when we did find them, several of them said to us, "Like, oh, I've been trying to break into the theater for so long, but I couldn't get hired." And we were wow. like, "What is what is the disconnect here that you want to work, and we're looking? I mean, are people not looking for you, or you, you know?" So I had a spreadsheet that I had developed over that process of, you know, here's a person, here's her contact information, she's not available. Here's a person and her instrument, her contact information, not available. And people started calling me and saying, I hear you have the list, you know, (laughs) um, 
we would like, we would like to hire from the list. And I got so much that I was like, I'm not an agent. Like I don't represent these people, but I, this list should be public in some way. I mean, not everybody's phone number, but this, you know, the, the idea that these women exist should be public. And so I hired a web designer to build a directory. It was originally just supposed to be a, a basic one function directory to just, so these women could be found. And like, if you want to hire this person, here's her website, here's her website, like go find her. And it grew and grew and grew around the same time. I was trying to gather the women composers together just because we didn't know each other, really. The first time I was trying to think of all the female composers that I knew who wrote for the theater in New York City, I think I came up with a list of 22 people. Our first, you know, our first meeting, I invited those 22 people to come. And then I started being really proactive about who's winning the awards, who's graduating from the grad school program, who's, you know, got musicals being developed out of town. And I would use social media to find those people and connect and invite them to join us at this meeting. So anyway, the the mm. directory and the composers meetings kind of merged into a thing. And I was like, I've got, I'm sitting on something here that is a collective of, of people. And I was like, is it a club? Is it like, what is it? But over time it, it grew in purpose and it grew in scope. And eventually I put together a team, a board of directors, and we applied for not-for-profit status, which we got. And it's now grown into a full-fledged 501c3 not-for-profit organization. We have 1300 people in the directory we have over 5,000 people on the mailing list. We have a mentorship program and we have regional and affinity groups. We have we have regional chapters all over the world. We have like a Maestro Moms group and LGBTQIA plus group. So it's just yeah. grown and grown and grown and grown. But it came out of the, I'll say, I guess the darkness or the impossibility of finding five musicians who were women and who weren't white. I will say that since its launch, we've gone through a lot of gender bias training and 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 now we're very clearly an organization for women and non-binary people. But at right. the very beginning, we weren't. And so that is a, a growth that we've gone through internally too. Yeah. I mean, there's such, obviously such a clear need for it. And it's sort of wild that something like this didn't exist until so recently. I think that too. I mean, it is really an example of, you know, that you know you hear people say like, it, you know, if there's a story you want told and you don't see it, you have to write it. Or, you know, if, if there's, if you can identify the gap, then you're called to fill it. And that, you know, but yeah. I, I mean, at the very beginning, I never thought I was starting a not-for-profit organization. I thought I was just doing something to make it easier to hire women. And then ultimately I was, I remember when I got the 501c3 status in the mail, I opened the letter and I showed it to my husband and I was like, apparently I run a not-for-profit now. Like it just seemed so wild. They're letting me be in charge of something. Um, and now, I mean, I spend so many hours a day on it. I'm like, I definitely run a yeah. not-for-profit now. Yeah, for sure. And I love the mentorship programs. I always repost it on our She Sources Instagram account. I'm always like, people, they're here for you. <laughs> Take advantage. Thank um, you. You know, we had the other thing I just want to plug is we have these virtual technical workshops that we have a spring semester, a little bit in the summer and a fall semester. And they're online Zoom workshops that are free for anyone to attend. Yeah. They're always taught by someone who is a member of Maestra because we feel like it's on mission to say, learn from an expert and let that expert be a woman or non-binary person because we're so unused to our teachers and our experts and our mentors and our the people above us being women and non-binary people. Yeah. That, that even that is on mission. And then also this, the idea of access that the information that you need to be successful at your job shouldn't be behind a paywall. You should just be able to 
find the resources to learn what you need to learn and make the connections from the people who can teach it. And so the classes themselves are free and the teachers, there are Zoom communities. So the chat is very active and people are talking and interacting. And then if you can't be there in person, they're available for rental through our website after the fact on this thing called Maestro Replay. That is amazing. Yeah, I think I've posted about those too as well, especially like Zoom classes, I think are one of the best parts to come out of the pandemic. And I hope they continue for so long because they are so convenient for, I mean, people from all over the country can attend the same class. And I think there's something so cool about that. And you do it on your own schedule in a way. I I hope those are here to stay. And that's amazing that you've made them so accessible. Yeah, Um, I'm really proud of it. Thank you. Yeah. What do you hope the future of Maestro is going to look like in the next coming years? It's really interesting because I think we've been so busy sort of solving for now that I'm just now beginning to think about long-term planning. There's been a lot of conversation about like, how do we serve our members? How do we make sure they're getting the uh, visibility? We say support visibility in communities. So how are they getting the support? How are they getting the visibility? How are they getting the community that they need? So we built programming to serve them. and And now I feel like I mean, I think if you ask most people who are active in Maestro, they'd say there's a lot of support, there's a lot of visibility, there's a lot of community. And now I'm starting to think, all right, what does the industry need from us? Right. What, are, what are our relationships with the producers? What are our relationships with the music contractors and the general managers and in terms of the industry and the hiring and the best practices for uh, all the things that, that fall in line in accordance with that? Um, we just started, we built another website that's called Get to Work, gettowork.org. And that is a conglomeration of 19 community partners that are all doing work in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access in the industry. So we keep saying like, as we all get back to work, we have to get to work to make sure we're ensuring who gets to work. Um, Mm. The idea being like the you know, who's doing work in the space of anti-racism, who's doing gender bias training, who's doing sign language interpreters and closed captioning, who's doing parenting best practices and nursing rooms. The idea being that as the industry is going through a bit of a revolution, it can be daunting to think, I know we have work to do internally, whatever organization you work in. I know that we have work to do internally, but how, where do we even start? Like, how do we, who do we hire? What consultant do we bring in to help us right. do something that's not just performative? And so the idea behind Get to Work is that is that we've put it all on one page. And we also post the industry statistics as we find them. You know, one of the shocking mm-hmm. statistics that Maestra found was, this was a statistic from 2020, right before the beginning of the pandemic, that in the eight years prior to that, there were 98 drum chairs available on Broadway, and two of them were women. Um, so there you go, less than 2%. <laughs> and so oh. when you see that, that's like, when you see that little pie yeah. graph, that's like, that's all you need to be like, okay, there's work to be done here. Like, why aren't women drummers? What? I mean, you know, then people say, well, there just aren't women drummers. They're just mostly men. And then you start digging around. And of course there are women drummers yes. <laughs> in our directory and they're amazing. Of but course. then you also get stories like one, there's a woman on our advisory board who said when she was in the fifth grade, she wanted to play the drums and she went up to her band director and was like, I want to play the drums. And he said, oh no, boys play the drums. You should play the flute. Oh and my gosh. So- She did. So she's a professional flutist. And the story that really moved me is she says, and I love playing the flute and and it's my livelihood, but I always wonder, would I have been a good drummer? And why did he get to decide? It's just, you know, like the work we have to do to, to change the bias in that band director's mind 
so yeah. that no says girls can't play the drums. It's insane. That is so sad. And it's also so sad that it started so young. It like does. That. Well, musicians, I think in order to be a professional musician, yeah. I mean, as soon as I say this, there we can think of a hundred ex- exceptions to the rule, but in general, yeah. people who train to be professional musicians spend a lot of their childhood learning and practicing and playing in ensembles and all of that. So if you are around someone who shapes you when you're in middle school age, when you're figuring it out, it can it, clearly from that story, it can shape you for the rest of your life. A lot of people in this industry do start so young and, and a lot of people are lucky in the sense that when you're really young, that you wanted to be an actor, you wanted to be a dancer, you wanted to be a musician and you get to grow up. And if you're passionate enough, you continue on that path. And it's, and it's amazing, but it does mean that there are a lot of adult influences on you. Like I actually am a dancer myself. And so I was dancing since I was, you know, since I could walk and every single dance teacher I've had shaped tremendously what I thought I was capable of, which is such an incredible power that they have. And at the same time, it's sort of worrisome when it's used in a different capacity. Of course, as you grow up, different paths branch off, you become like multi-hyphenate and things that you never even saw coming for yourself. But there are some things that you have hoped and dreamed about since you were a little kid. I'm excited to think about like, I was a dance teacher for a little bit after graduating because it was like, I wanted to make sure that those five-year-old girls that I could give back to them something of just how I I understood how important it was, even at the five-year-old level, even at the five to 10-year-old level of the arts of just not creating those limitations. And I'm grateful to have teachers along the way that didn't do that to me. And so it makes my heart sink when I hear about people who were limited when they were so young and it affected the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I it's we've been doing a bunch of interviews lately, and almost everyone has a story, some sort of story like that about um, some moment when they were told that they couldn't do it or that they shouldn't yeah. do it. You know, it's it's heartbreaking. That thing you described about why you want to serve those five year old girls is really why I think our mentorship program has been so successful. We this year have forty nine pairings of mentor-mentee pairings. And really it's, you know, when we put out a call for, would you like to be a mentor? It's a it's a really small fee. It's, it's a kind of a pittance. It's not like people yeah. are doing it for the money. Though they are paid, you know, it's not free, but it's, yeah, yeah, my, yeah. you know. It's um, sort of a volunteer position almost. Yeah, it's a glor- volunteer plus. And then, <laughs> but anyway, that so many people stepped forward and said, I want to help, I want to help. And most of them said, like, I want to be the person that I didn't have. I right. want to fill that gap and be for someone else what I couldn't find myself. And I recently wrote uh, an article and started it by saying, as I think about the path that I had that led me here, I've had so many good teachers and most of them were men. And I don't want to dismiss what they were able to teach me or the the ways they took me under their wing or the rooms that they invited me into and gave me access to. But I've so rarely had a woman in the supervisory position that I, it's just shocking when you think of like what what an absence that was. There have been a few and I don't want to discount them either, but I, they're so, I mean, I can count them on one hand, how, right. how, we, how few times I've, I've like been uh, an apprentice to some, a supervisor who was female. Yeah, totally. Um, sort of on a similar note, another question that I really love to ask, because I like to ask people about their high moments, but also there's a lot of low moments as a woman in these industries where, like you said, statistically speaking, sometimes the, like, it just is male dominated still for women and non-binary people in this industry, excuse me. Have you ever experienced moments of disrespect in your career and how did you cope with it? And looking back on it, do you wish that you coped with it differently? 
Yeah. As you started the question, I was like, what am I, you know, your brain spins, like, what am I going to say? And then something popped in so clearly. Mm -hmm. And I'll remember that I was, I was on a concert. I was booked to present a piece of music on a concert. And the feature was musical theater composers who have also written choral music, which I have. Right. And so it was a choir that was presenting the concert and they were presenting music uh, of all these people. And at the beginning of the concert, or maybe before each piece went on, the host, the conductor of the evening, is that who it was? Or the host of the evening mm-hmm. introduced and said, like, this is so-and-so and here are some credits and here are some really interesting things about the context of what you're going to hear so that you, so that now when you hear the music, you know who it is that wrote it. And we were all there. So the spotlight was on us and we were visible. And so I listened to four or five people get introduced and then um, it became my turn. And the host said, this next piece you're going to hear is written by Georgia Stitch. She's the wife of Jason Robert Brown and he has done blah, 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 and listed his resume. And then then they played my piece. What? Oh my God. I mean, and I just, I wanted to sink into a hole and die. I just thought, okay, this piece was written by Jason Robert Brown's wife. And that was the box that I got placed into. Um, Interestingly, like after the fact, I got emails from women through my website who were like, I was at that concert and that was horrifying what happened to you. And I just, I want you to know that I saw it and that it's atrocious and, you know, and I, I don't have any memory of me doing anything about it except coming home and being upset and, you know, And to his credit, Jason also was upset. Like, yeah. <laughs> we don't have a husband who was like, I mean, why why is it so bad to be my right. wife? Yeah, yeah. That he absolutely understand and understood and has said over the years, like, for 100%, there are things that happened to you that would never happen to me. Like, I would never be, int- even if you were, even if you were like an Oscar winner, I would never be introduced only as your husband. You know, so uh, I I don't, I guess in the context of like, is there something I wish I had done differently? You know, Mm -hmm. you know, the superhero version of me, which is in that moment, I had said, wait, before you play my piece, (laughs) (laughs) say something about me as well. Yeah. Uh, But I, I, instead I was trying to sink into the hole, into the floor. Yeah. I'm so glad that you got (laughs) emails from other people who were like, that was awful. I have an email folder. I recommend this for people. I have a, you know, we all file our emails in various categories and I have one called feel good emails. Um, And just anytime anybody writes me something that's like, you're amazing. And here's why I put it into a feel good email. And, um, and that one is in there somewhere. I think it would be easy to find. if I went into the, you know, that, that series of emails from those people. That's a great idea. I think everyone needs a feel feel good email folder. Yeah, yeah. It, it is those notes. It is those like, now it's like Instagram DMs too. It's like those DMs, those emails of people being like, I see you, I see what you're doing. And I really admire it. That just like, it makes such a difference. And it's also so nice. I do feel like there's a community of, of women and non-binary people that it's become so supportive online through the pandemic of each other of being like, keep going, you've got it, which is awesome. So my last big question for you is if you could tell a younger version of yourself one thing, what would it be? This is something that I heard that I adopted as my own. This is my advice always is, is about the importance of finishing. And I think this is something that I still wrestle with is that it's really, 
it's not super hard to have a good idea, I think. And to even start that idea, like I have an idea for a book I want to write, or I have an idea for a musical, or I have an idea for a song cycle, or, you know, whatever it is that you're making. And you can even get well into it, halfway into it, but it doesn't really count unless you finish it. You know, it, it counts for your own sense of like, here I am writing every day and all that. But if I, I talk a lot about how composers are, you know, my job when I write music on paper, I, what I'm creating is a blueprint. I'm not creating a house. I'm creating the blueprint for the house. Like the music exists in my head and I wrote it and I've composed it and I own it. But until somebody can actually make the music and the musicians can come together and, and lift it off the page, it's not really music. It's, it's notation of music. And so in, until you finish it, and that, that doesn't mean you have to write everything down, you know, but it means you have to create something in a version that you can birth it to the world, you know, that you can give it over and be done with it, as opposed to like, this is a thing that I'm constantly working on. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the ways that I've been held back in my career in many cases are because I was hoping somebody would, would sort of see me and shine a spotlight on my potential because of the thing that I was working on. Mm. Uh, and the moments where it really moved forward was when I finished it and handed it to somebody and said, I have made this. And that is a hard thing to learn, especially when you're in a business that doesn't necessarily pay for the work while you're making it. You know, a lot right. of writers don't get commissioned to write the thing. You write it and then you sell it or try to sell it. And so it can be hard to, to diligently work on something until you finish it or keep believing in it, even if no one else is seeing it. But this is a thing I, I deal with daily. Like I am regularly, like I have to write this thing today because it, it doesn't have value until I finish it. And then when I finish it, I can go produce it or record it or market it in whatever other way. But right. it's really hard to sell the idea. Mm. That is so, that is such good advice. And it's, it's scarier to do that. It's scarier to finish it because now you're like, well, here it is. And now it's up for, for so much feedback. Yeah. And if you finish it and it's not successful, then you have to own that. I made yeah. a thing as opposed to like, oh, I'm still working on it. And like, right. you know, and I, you know, the reason it hasn't happened is because I haven't finished it. So it, it, you have to own that, that place in, in the process. I have three speed round questions that are just like super fun. I think okay. make a fun way to wrap it up. So what are you watching right now on TV? Okay. I'm not much of a TV watcher. Mm -hmm. I really watch like one thing at a time. So I, I'll tell you, I watched only murders in the building, which I loved. I watched the Beatles get back documentary, which I oh, love. I watched some of that too. Yeah. Gosh, I loved that. And what do we just start? Oh, Ted Lasso. We watched, we watched season one of Ted Lasso. And then what are you reading right now? Are you reading anything? I'm reading so much. I just finished a book. So I, I, I read a lot and I just finished um, a book by Krista Tippett. She is the, she has a podcast called On Being that is about uh, our relationship to spirituality in the world. And she interviews people of different religions and, you know, but just what does it mean to be a spiritual human moving through the world? And um, she wrote a book called Becoming Wise. It's called Becoming Wise. Oh, I've heard uh, of this. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. so, and it's so dense that I found that I could read two or three pages and then I'd have to stop and think about it. It took me a really long time to finish it. And I was, you know, devouring other things at the same time, but, but I would read a few pages and be like, I can't just move on. And like, I have to stop and really mm. think deeply about what she has said. So I highly recommend. Oh, cool. Lastly, what are you listening to right now? Do you have any favorite music on repeat? 
Favorite music on repeat? Boy, this is a hard question. I tend, right now I'm listening to things that are research related. Let's see, what did I listen? What about the most? Okay. I listen to things to explore. I don't listen to things for pleasure so much, hmm. but I recently was, this is, sounds so highfalutin. I was reading a book of Margaret Atwood poetry mm-hmm. and, and I, they were called poems for baritone or something poems for songs for baritone. And it was just the poetry. And I was like, that's so fascinating. I wonder if she set them to music. And so I Googled it and I in fact found that she has recently set them to music um, uh, by a composer named Jake Heggie. It was so fascinating. Songs for murdered sisters. Ooh. Well, that's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for being here on Zoom and for sharing your story. I'm honored that you took the time to talk with me for a little bit. For finding me and and interviewing me. I appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Maestra, head to maestramusic.org. If you want to learn more about Georgia Stitt, head to georgiastitt.com. Dot com. Can I speak English today? We'll see. If you want to learn more about She Sources, you can head to our website, www.shesources.co. Uh, this interview will be available as a transcript on our website in about a week. Every time we drop a new episode, we try to release the transcript from the episode before. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Bye.